Hi, this is Zach from Reader Beware. Before we get to this episode, I want to make a few quick announcements. First, please forgive the audio quality of this episode. Parts of it are very difficult to listen to, and to be honest, we debated releasing it at all. But the discussions we have are very important, and we found the insights pretty valuable. And for that reason, we figured it was better to put out something that was rather rough than uh, nothing at all. The audio improves later in the show, and we plan to have much cleaner audio in the future. And that actually leads me to my second announcement. We're making some changes to Reader Beware. We're upgrading our technology so that we don't have future episodes that sound like this. They'll be much cleaner and much easier on the ears. We're also tweaking our content to make our feed more consistent. We'll be releasing new book discussions every other month and interspersing smaller, shorter discussions into the feed between the gaps. These smaller episodes will discuss an article or other piece of media, such as a documentary or something, that is relevant to various critical subjects like social justice, politics, business, policy, and the like. We'll have our first mini-episode coming later this week with a discussion related to the current COVID-19 pandemic. These tweaks are in an effort to improve ourselves and our show. We appreciate anyone who listens or who has listened to this point and hope to continue learning and growing as we continue to work on this project together. Enjoy the episode, and as always, readers, beware. No, Mr. Perfectionist, I liked the way I did it. Okay, then do, do it again. Hi guys, welcome back to Reader Beware, the critical book club where three friends from debate pick a book and then we talk about it because we're nerds and that's what we do. I'm Alexis, I'm here with my co-hosts Zach, no last name, and Thomas Rotering because he doesn't care about his privacy. How are you guys doing? I'm good, thanks for reporting my privacy, unlike uh, last week. I am good and I fully will bear my opinion to the world. Unashamed. Unashamed. I am ashamed. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, this month we are talking about the book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, written by Rennie Edo Lodge. All right. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Ms. Edo Lodge because she's awesome. I've actually been listening a little bit to her podcast called About Race, which you can find anywhere you find podcasts. It's really good. She's actually really like funny and her laugh is so endearing. Like I just want to be friends with her. Um, Anyway, she is a London-based award-winning journalist. She has written for the New York Times, The Voice, Daily Telegraph, The Guardian, and The New Humanist, among other publications. She's the winner of many awards, including a Women of the World Bold Moves Award, an MHP 30 to Watch Award, and she was chosen as one of the top 30 young people in digital media by The Guardian in 2014. She's also been listed in Elle's 100 Inspirational Women list and The Roots 30 Black Viral Voices Under 30. And amazingly, why I'm no longer talking to 
white people about race. This is her very first book, but yet it's nominated for a bunch of cool awards that I won't read because I feel like I've been talking for a long time. So you should check out the book if you haven't already. And if you don't have time to read for leisure, then check out her podcast called About Race. Who has time to read for leisure? I don't know. No one, but we do it. So you can too. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess this is a... Uh some kind of weird sadistic pleasure for us <laughs> i mean i'm into it i enjoy it but no. sometimes i'm like why <laughs> why am i 14 year old me that i would be super into reading like educational books in my free time and, like, that's what i would stress about making sure i do <laughs> yeah i don't think be disappointed in me <laughs> 14-year-old me would be very proud of myself right now. <laughs> so what do you guys think about the book? We should probably give a little bit of a synopsis about like what kind of things it touches on. Uh, well, I was just going to kind of run through like the contents page because it's pretty straightforward. But I think one important thing to know about this book is that it's actually following a blog post that Rennie wrote called why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. And it blew up, it went viral. At that time, she had no intention of writing a book, which is kind of obvious from the title of the blog post. Um, but just through how well received um, fellow people of color, um, she kind of realized that there was more for her to do in this area. And then she ended up writing a whole entire book about it. Um, so something that I didn't necessarily realize when I picked this book is that she is British. Um, I, that didn't necessarily click for me. So just keep in mind that this is all based in the UK. But the first part of the book is called Histories. And um, it just it goes into a lot of history surrounding like racial violence and oppression in the UK that I personally was not aware of like at all. I don't know if you guys like knew about some of those horrible things. I, did, I certainly didn't. I, I thought what was particularly interesting was the history of imperialism in the UK. Um, and how um, they just have such a different history than the United States, which is obvious now that I've read the book. But um, I also appreciated that the chapter is called Histories. Um, in my mind, that, that sort of brought up the fact that there's different versions of history that are often mm -hmm. used for different political and social purposes. So um, it was very eye-opening. It was kind of, it was, it was difficult to read just because there's a lot of like, human pain and suffering in it that um, yeah. was just difficult to get yeah. through but I think important and you know from over here on the other side of the pond knowing a little bit more about the UK was really insightful and I just wanted to say that phrase so. <laughs> yeah I agree I think that like this chapter was really really well written um, it's probably uh, I like a lot of parts of the book actually but this is this is definitely I think one of the more uh, well 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 researched and kind of data-driven pieces. I think the, the nuances and examples that it cites are really interesting, and it lays out a history of imperialism and also a history of, like, race relations during wartime, um, which was quite... I think I found the war aspects the most fascinating, like the dynamics that existed between people of color uh, during times where they served, and they were relegated to, like, support roles rather than being allowed to be in main roles, and they got, like, the hard labor and, like, physical aspects of it. Um, 
which you know makes makes sense i guess like if you're coming at it from like a western united states perspective and have that understanding of racism and whatnot but also is a little bit different in terms of like how we experience things and learn about things in the united states i think yeah um well i'm really glad to hear that you all appreciated this part um something that stood out to me and i apologize i should have taken better notes from this beginning part of the book but um it stood out to me the part about the police college that hired a black sociologist as part of like a community liaison like type of role and he anonymously asked what well, we asked the trainees of the police cadets to write anonymous essays just on the topics on the topic of blacks in britain and some of the responses i mean they were just like disgusting um for example i think that all blacks are pains and should be ejected from society on the whole most blacks are unemployed like rastafarians who go around with big floppy hats roller skates and stereo radios smoking pot and sponging money off the state and that's just one example and this was um in 1982 by the way so this was not that long ago and um i don't know that's just something that really wouldn't surprise me if it happened in the u.s and like we are actually seeing that with like these police officers who are caught on social media being racist pieces of shit um and this it really shouldn't surprise me like if i were educated this wouldn't surprise me just because it was in the uk so that's just like an example of how we might think that you know britain's racial history is like significantly different from ours which causes us to really minimize their unique experience and it's wrong like they have their an individual history with all of this that in some ways is like ours um but that deserves its own appreciation i think yeah it's always nice to have like nuance because i think we can a lot of times generalize experiences based on the histories that we may know um, without understanding those other histories histories we may not be aware of or you know may have not been elucidated by history because the folks whose narratives they are, are people that have been oppressed and not in the dominant position right um so after histories she goes into a chapter called the system do you all have any thoughts about that um, it's not it was... one that stands out to me like necessarily but what about you all I thought it was um, a good, like, <clears throat> I hesitate to say reminder because the systems are so different um, in the UK and the United States, but I think the impact of racism is similar um, in a lot of ways. The system basically just went over the different um, problems in our institution, our institutions as well um, as our culture and society that act against people of color and seek to privilege um, white people um, and the white institution. So it talked a lot about um, kind of tracing the life of somebody through their upbringing, their childhood, through schooling, through getting a job, through pretty much every stage of their life and the barriers that people of color face at every stop, um, which are systemic. They're a part of the system. It's not necessarily that they every day they run into someone who you know levels of a racist slur at them it's that 
these are a part of the fabric of society and so they impact people in very subtle but profound ways sometimes not so subtle right dang i'm like let's just leave it at that that was very well said Roder. um the next one talked about white privilege which i mean it's always good to talk about white privilege i noted that she quoted from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham Jail, which is one of my favorite things to read. Um, you should read it, and you should read it often because it's brilliant. And seeing that in here was just like a nice affirmation that I haven't been barking up all the wrong trees, and I kind of know something. Um, oh, also, I think it was in this chapter where she kind of addressed people who are mixed race and people who are not necessarily mixed race but might have been adopted by white people or you know who like me are mixed race but were raised almost exclusively by their parent that so happened to be white and um that was just a very eye-opening um part of the book to read about for me personally because that's honestly part of my journey that I'm going through um, every day. This book and critical race theory that I'm taking at the law school like are really um, kind of bringing this topic to the forefront of my mind. And so reading that um, one of Rennie's like, friends goes to a support group for this was like really mind-blowing to me because, you know, I don't know. There's just so much. I'm actually going to write my paper on this, I think, for critical race theory. But so much of everyone's identity formation happens in childhood or begins to. And when you don't have a strong grasp of your um, racial identity, if you're raised in a like race-neutral way or that part of you is never nurtured, it can, I don't want to say like super detrimental but i think it can be really confusing and definitely come with people into adulthood and then as an adult you have to like reckon with that with like your parents which i do with my mom sometimes but it's really hard um so it was just very eye opening and yeah pass it off whereas the first two chapters are very like historical analysis, statistics, and data, um, as well as, like, different examples. I, I think this chapter is more personalized and kind of reflective of an individual journey, and I think it's a really interesting nuance, and I think she shares some of her concerns about the challenges that, that mixed-race couples face when they raise children because of the different pressures and possible um, hindrances that may face their child as they grow up and beyond because of the different uh, the, the different intersections they have to navigate. Um, so I, I thought it was really interesting. It's not a perspective that I have been exposed to a ton, and so it was uh, definitely helpful for me. I think that it was um, one of the more, I, I don't, I think I've said this before, but I like probably skew towards liking the data-driven analysis of books, but this was, I thought, really effective because of how open and, and interesting the analysis actually was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it, it allowed me a lot of ways to introspect as well, but um, Alexis, I'm sorry to hear that's sort of been 
a, a problem or, or not necessarily a problem but just that you're you're as you process this like i'm glad we can process it with you um it reminds me of a book we read or we were supposed to read in school called um uh i think it's called borderlands and it talked a lot about how um people who were living in um, the southwest um who had a mexican descent who were united states citizens um, often felt the tension between wanting to associate with the United States and wanting to associate with Mexico and in terms of their racial identity, how to just relate to the world. And oftentimes their reflections or the reflections of the author was that by the Mexican community, they were told that they were acting white and American. And by the American community, they were told they were acting Mexican. And so they were sort of like never really they never really felt welcomed in either community, which was a really difficult um, sort of shadow land to be in. Maybe yeah. it was called Shadowlands. <laughs> I'm not sure. No, you're right. It was Borderland, um, and it's like it's it's getting it another like big stick concept, which is colorism, right? It, I think it kind of interacts really well with with that. It, it says that there's like different hierarchies of um, ethnicity in some ways because people that are maybe very dark skin can discriminate against people that are lighter skin. Um, one example that I've heard used before is a lot of folks said Obama wasn't black enough um, and he was you know, not giving credit or not taken seriously in his race and kind of rejected in that way. The thing is interesting because Borderlands approached it from a different ethnicity but we see the same concept can be true um, across different groups of, of people that um, or of a similar ethnic background, or just even a slightly related ethnic background, you, you see these same problems uh, reified. Mm. And something, like, I want to take time on this point, because, like, something, it's just, it's really complicated. Um, like, because my dad was adopted from the Philippines, and he was... So we know, or we know, quote-unquote, that his mother um, was a Filipino woman, and we, we were told that it, um, his father was a white sailor um, who was there at the time. Um, but I am highly suspect of that, because that would mean that he's half Filipino, half white, and I'm a quarter, which, it, I mean, you look at me, like, I can't, I'm super brown, so I don't know. Um, so it's like, I don't even really, like, identify with, like, that culture, like, at all, and it's really sad, and I'm thankful for my fiancé's family, because his mom is part Filipino and was born there, actually, too, and also adopted, um, but she is very in touch with the culture, and so it's like, you know, I was not only raised, I mean, I don't know, being raised race neutral, which I'm using that term instead of colorblind because I want to kind of not use that term, um, but it just, it's like you don't get a multifaceted, comprehensive concept, either the good or the bad, of being a person of color. You don't get the history, the culture, you know, any of that. And you're also not aware, like, hey, the world is seeing you as a minority. Just because you're being raised white, 
surprise, the whole world doesn't care how you see yourself or how your mom is raising you. So um, it's like not only am I really confused, but I also don't feel like I can go to, you know, go hang out with a bunch of like Filipino people because I don't really feel like I'm, you know, one of them either. And it's like I, I, I shouldn't have to feel like I need to go you know, spend $200 on, like, a 23andMe test to, like, be a person. But yet, almost weekly, someone asks me, what are you? You know, where are you from? And I think that, honestly, I'm starting to think of that question a little more as a microaggression each time that I hear it. Um, just because you never know someone's relationship with their own racial identity. So even though you just really want to know why their complexion is the way it is or why their hair is the way it is, and it might be a well-meaning thing, asking someone about their race, sometimes it's not a compliment and it's not something that people really want to talk about with a stranger. And I used to never think anything of it, but just the more that I kind of come into this journey, I'm like, why are you asking me that? Like, that's actually a very intimate and personal question. Maybe not for you, maybe not for a lot of people, but, you know, for me, I don't know how to answer that question. Where are you from or what are you? What are you? Like, what are you? Yeah, like, what are you? Okay. Which the more I, like, think about that is such a weird way to, like, phrase a thing like oh i'm a person like one follow-up question i think might be interesting is before you even answer being like how do you ask and then if someone's like oh i don't know i just like knowing where people's hometown is then you're like oh that's like a different question than like well uh, you know i want to know how i should think of you as a person then you're like whoa that's Right. And it's like when people ask that, I don't think that they're asking, like, I'm not thinking that they want to hear that I grew up in New Mexico. They want to know why I look exotic, really, you know? So maybe challenging that with the question of, or like saying, I'm from New Mexico. And then them having to ask that other follow up question of, like, that's not what I meant. Like, maybe people would kind of, you know, catch themselves. But, and then another aspect is that, you know, mixed race people is like one of the fastest growing populations um, in our society. And so for a lot of people, what that means is that their parents are not necessarily mixed race, but you know, that their children obviously will be. And so I think it's really important for us to have these conversations, not only for all of the mixed race people who are already grown now and whose experiences deserve um, airtime but also for like the coming generation that is going to be more racially um ambiguous i guess than even we are and knowing as you know parents if you want to have kids how you're going to approach that how you're going to raise your children who might not be mixed race to interact with kids who are um bringing issues you know like zach brought up like colorism to the forefront because that's not going to get any easier in the future i just think it's a really important conversation to have and um i don't know if sometimes it, it can feel like when we bring up people of mixed race identity if it's like erasing just black people or just erasing latinx people 
maybe that's like a discomfort I've had with it before, but really we're not trying to push anyone else to the margins. We're just trying to like take up space as well with our own identities. Yeah, yeah I think that that gets a little bit into um, uh, what Rennie calls the fear of the black planet. Um, what did, what, what did you were talking different? about reminded me of that. I don't want to rush you, but. No, please, we're good. Good segue. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's always uh, an interesting proposition to be a white guy or someone who people see as white and be on podcast talking about a book about race. So I approach this topic with um, humility and um, hopefully we'll speak to other uh, white people who may listen. Um, can you still hear yeah. me? Yeah, no, I can. That's actually a good, a good point because, Rotor, you you told us the other day that some people who listen, which thank you. Oh, by the way, oh my God, we have almost a hundred likes on Facebook, which wow. to me is a lot. Like, I feel like that's a lot. That's super cool, and I I want to get people interacting with us more. But some some people like approached Rotor and were like, "Can you kind of?" dumb it down for us and um no because you're not dumb so we're not going to dumb it down because you're you're smart and you you don't know what you don't know and we all have been there um but if you do have questions ask you know we do have an email i forgot what it is what is it i think it's reader pod at gmail but facebook messenger (laughs) (laughs) facebook messenger also works and so this can be an ongoing conversation um, if you do feel like maybe something was a little above your head or over your head, just reach out to us. Um, and, you know, if you want to speak directly to one of us because of our unique experiences, then we'll make sure that that happens. But sorry, did you want to talk about Black Planet? Because you didn't. Sure. So the story <laughs> of the Black Planet um, talks about how white society is sort of... Um, afraid of what the future holds. Um, They're afraid of what the planet will look like as it becomes more uh, inclusive and as it it changes just off the fact of um, population transfer and geographic uh, liberty, just as people move around and and marry and have children. and Mm -hmm. um, It's sort of this desperate holding on to the past um which i think has some merit in terms of holding on to um the past in terms of our histories and our our cultures but if we are holding on to any grain of oppression or if we're holding on to any grain of what white society looks like then i think it ought to be jettisoned and i think that's (laughs) I, i believe that's the at least sub the fairly explicit um, reading from Rennie is that we ought not be afraid of the black planet, and that fear is often used as a way to suppress um, a march towards equality. And I should clarify, the black planet is sort of this, it's sort of like a mythical understanding of what the future looks like when whiteness loses its grip on our culture. Yeah, I mean, the, the down and dirty, like, fear, right, is that everybody, there's, there'll be no more white people because there'll be so much mixed race, uh, so many, 
so much mixing of different ethnic groups and races through like generations of uh, cultures coming together and interweaving and like the melting pot that is America and the world and like through globalization in the next however many hundred years uh, like white people will be severely outnumbered which to me seems like a really simplistic understanding of things like ethnographies and race and, and genealogy uh, if anything to be honest because like I think it's a lack of understanding of like what makes people human and a lack of understanding of like how cultures have developed historically and like a lack of understanding of how technology inevitably probably brings globalization together into like a more inter interactive space. I also just think like it's very much a dog whistle, um, the, the idea like any anybody that does have a fear like that. Like really a dog whistle, but I guess all that is to, to say that like it, I, I think the sphere of the Black Planet piece is, is a really interesting piece for me to read because um, I, I think I would have been someone who was like, what? No, there's not large groups to believe that, uh, and I still think it's not every white person in every white group, but like that's not the point, right? <laughs> the fact that there are like significant um, groups of individuals that have these types of fears is concerning and it's probably why conversations still need to happen, why you see big, big ethnic populists like Donald Trump and, you know, uh, Boris Johnson find success in places like the United States and the UK, which are reckoning with these racial, racial and immigration uh, conflicts. Beautifully said. I don't know, sometimes I wonder if it... I don't, I don't want to oversimplify, like, this phenomenon that she's talking about of people believing this, but it seems like it kind of all comes down to, like, that mentality of scarcity and that if the world becomes more black and brown and less white, then inherently you and your people are going to lose something or white people are going to lose something, like... I don't know, to me, because it's like, why else would you be so concerned with it unless you feel like your people, your your tribe are in danger? Which I think to some extent is probably like a natural human thing, and I don't want to necessarily disrespect um, some degree of that mentality because we all want to protect our people, but that is just such a like unreasonable mentality that I think is the result of a lot of fear-mongering and misinformation. Um, I'm not trying to say that we do have unlimited resources or unlimited, you know, fresh water or uh, food because I don't know the science behind that, but I do know that, you know, perpetrating racial violence against others because you fear a black planet, which people might not have that vocabulary for it, but I, I do think that lots of different types of people probably have some of those thoughts, even if they don't use this verbiage, but it's not reasonable to, like, in my opinion, like, vote for Donald Trump because he plays to those fears and that mentality of scarcity because he blames Mexicans and he blames Muslims and he blames other people for the fact that capitalism has literally fucked over so many white people that just like the rest of us and they're poor and they want someone to blame but others are not to blame and i just wonder if like that's it might be oversimplifying it but the bottom line is that just people feel like there's not enough to go around question 
obviously representative of like several intersections of oppression that still exist. Yeah, and I think if I'm taking an extremely cynical view of it, what is to be lost is privilege. So there is something to lose in terms of that because it, they would lose out on the benefits of oppression and exclusion. That's actually which is horrible. Yeah, well, that's actually a really good point, and I wanted to draw attention to one piece of the book that um, the that's kind of the conclusion to the chapter here of a black planet. And the paragraph reads, it's the last paragraph of the chapter, and it reads, The paradox, of course, is that those who oppose anti-racism, by the way, anti-racism is just like opposing racism. It's really simple. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, the paradox, of course, is those who oppose anti-racism have worked themselves into quite the double bind. It's a bit of a Schrodinger's cat situation. If, as they say, racism doesn't exist and black people have nothing to complain about, why are they so afraid of white people becoming the new minority? I suppose we will have to wait in suspense until 2066, the projected year when white people will be a demographic minority in Britain, to find out. So anyway, I thought that was a really pointed way to like sum up this whole chapter, and like part of me wanted to push back in instances of this chapter, because there are generalizations made, and Zach's always do I, I always try to like support nuance, nuance, and complexity, and complexity, and, and I struggle with accepting generalizations and kind of moving past to see the bigger picture sometimes. Um, but that paragraph, I just really, I think, succinctly displays what I, I very much can understand and agree with and, and certainly see uh, after after the chapter that argues that. Um, I think it's well-supported, and, and that's just a, a really kind of good way to put it. And I think it's even quicker in America. I should have looked this up beforehand, but um, white people are supposed to be a minority majority at some point in the next, you know, couple of decades. I think it's mm-hmm. And when that happens, I'm sure there will be arguments just like after President Obama was elected and multiple other times throughout history that we will have arrived in a post-racial society. And guess what? That still won't be true because I would be willing to bet any amount of money that, you know, the top institutions and systems in our society will still be majority white. So don't get excited, white people, to fight me on this in a few decades because we're still not going to be post-racial. Um, so don't get excited. But yeah, Give it a few thousand uh, years, yeah. and then I think things get really complex and wild. Because I, I don't know what it looks like when you have like some, some equal shares of people vying for power. I, I guess I guess this is where it's like, for me, if you don't tear down capitalism and like find ways to at least combat severe wealth inequality, you don't have to get rid of capitalism on face. But like, wealth inequality today is the same as it was in the first industrial revolution. Like, Zuckerbergs and the uh, Bezoses of the world, kind of like the new Andrew Carnegies and, and Rockefellers. And I, I just think that, like, we will always have problems and oppressed people groups that are split apart when the people at the top are trying to maintain power and control and get as much as they can. So I think this we're going to get to that in a second because she does discuss capitalism as well. But I think that's a fascinating piece that really has to be addressed. Um, in conjunction with addressing intersections of race and, cl- and um, gender and, and other pieces that are touched on today. Oh my god, that so badly wanted to be a segue because of the first critical question that we're going to talk about is one that Zach and I both posed um, and we didn't know what the other person was, I mean we knew, deep down, I think we knew <laughs> that we were both going to ask it. but. So I want to kind of skip to the critical questions because I think we're going to address the rest of the chapters in our questions. But the um, 
The last chapters are the feminism question, which was so, so good. Um, please get this book. I mean, she just has a very, to me, it's a hopeful way of portraying feminism. And a lot of women of color, understandably, distance themselves from feminism because it is extremely whitewashed and that is a very valid criticism and i it hurts me to see that happen but i i respect the decision but rennie is unashamed and unapologetic in her i don't want to say support of the feminist movement but she's a feminist and she you know critiques it and criticizes it in a way that doesn't make you feel as though you just need to give up on the whole thing so that was really cool. And then a chapter called Race in Class. And then her final chapter called There's No Justice, There's Just Us. And then also, um, what is that? An epilogue? Called The Aftermath one? It's called Aftermath. I believe it is an epilogue. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there we go. Um, where she kind of talks about the like political landscape that happened immediately like during while she was writing and publishing the book and then also since it's been published so she like does talk about the election of trump and stuff like that so um you should really get the book it's amazing and um, i'm really proud of her just the fact that this is her first actual book is really cool and inspiring so before we get into our critical question i think we have an ad break Yes, so our first ad break. This episode of Reader Beware is not brought to you by The Independent. Want to camouflage your rampant xenophobia in a guise of stiff upper lip anger? Join The Independent today in ridiculing Meghan Markle into leaving the royal family. With just 12 payments of 19 pounds, you can join the institution that successfully completed Brexit in doing linguistic gymnastics not to sound overtly racist while decrying the improper, un-British foreigner and telling her to go back to her country, but then heralding the end of Britain when she does. Plus, order now, and we won't throw in a red hat with a bright blue on it. Jolly, this hat is so fucking fuzzy, it will turn any good hair into a Boris Johnson wet dream of tangled, malangled hair. Mangled. Just like Trump. Join the few, the proud, the rethinking elite at the Independence. <laughs> That was so good. Oh my god. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's really funny because, listeners, uh, Zach did not write that. He just read it cold. Alright, so getting into our first critical question. Uh, I don't really know how to do this because we didn't write it as one. Um, I think Zach's actually... I think Zach's, like, is actually more well-written, so I'll read Zach's. Um, on page 206, when discussing the relationship between race and class, Edo Lodge posits the following. Years before this country had a significant black and immigrant presence, there was an entrenched class hierarchy. The people who maintained these class divisions didn't care about those on the bottom rung then, and they don't care now. But immigration blamers encourage you to point to your neighbor and convince yourself that they are the problem, rather than question where the wealth is concentrated in this country, and exactly why resources are so scarce. And the people who push this rhetoric couldn't care less either way, just as long as you're not pointing your finger at them. Given this statement, do you believe there is a way to tear down structural racism without first, or at least 
simultaneously inciting a class revolution that confronts modern oligarchs who use tools of racism, sexism, xenophobia, and the like to divide. Yeah, really good question. And it just so happens to mirror what we were trying to get into um, a few minutes ago. <sighs> this is a lot. Yeah, you want to tackle this first? Uh, you want to go to Rotor? What do you guys think? What do you all think? Uh, give it to me in, like, very simple language. The secrecy question where you have to address racism to increase partisanship. Uh, and so, uh, for me, the question has always been, I think capitalism is so strong, and wealth stratification has increased so much since the early 2000s to 2020, that those structures will always use tools racism in different ways to drive people apart. So they can maintain power. Oh. So that makes sense. And I, I apologize. I apologize for asking you to put that more simply, because I know you're all about nuance. <laughs> but... That makes sense to me. I think, um, you know, there's... I, I see what you're saying. There's sort of this idea that of, like, do we need to approach these problems sort of, like, one at a time as a way to destabilize the power of oppression? Or do we need to, like, take them all on at once as a way to destabilize the top? Um, that sounds like a really complicated question, and I think that because it's such a complicated question, it probably requires like a a months long or a years long conversation in your community um, that sort of like comes from the right place, that comes from an educated place, and comes from a place with a lot of resources to actually tackle those problems. So I think. My answer would be, you need to provide for education, um, for financial resources, and for health for people. I sort of see those as the three sort of entry points to um, affecting um, sort of like un people without power. Because if you're not healthy and you can't go to work and you can't go to rallies and you can't like make your voice heard. And that's a non-starter. If you don't have the resources to do that and to take time off work and to, like, you know, maybe run an ad or to publish a book or something like that, then that's also a non-starter. And then finally, if um, you don't have sort of an education that gets you a seat at the table or that, you know, allows you to access and use those resources in the appropriate way, then that's also sort of a non-starter. So... I tend to think from a social perspective, we could work on those three areas and sort of develop that conversation along the way. Um, and I'm, I'm not as sort of like strictly anti-capitalist as you, but I do see like the, <laughs> I do see the, 
But my whole thing, going back to the first book we read, is that like capitalism is this engine that can lift people out of poverty and can provide for awesome things in the world. But if you don't equip it with a steering wheel and with you know a windshield and with seatbelts, then like you just have an engine that's worthless. And if you don't if you don't direct capitalism in a direction you want to go in, it's not inherently good or bad. That sounded like a very simplified version of a myth Elizabeth Warren's like get the American people. <laughs> yeah, Elizabeth Warren. No, I, I, I'm not no, gonna I, put my score behind her, but yeah, no, she's alright. She's gonna come. And I think like the metaphor is, is solid. So you're very much like coming at it from a regulated capitalist. I'm not against that. Like I don't think it has to be solved. I just know what's happening now, what's going on now is not <laughs> not a good system for any group that's being oppressed and their multiplicity of groups that are being kind of affected negatively because of the lack of regulated capitalism right now. Maybe regulated capitalism would work, so let's just get this side but also Maybe not, maybe still like three or five kind of problems. So I'm not even, I only have this confidence that would be the final solution, but I'm willing to give it a try. And I, oh, okay, I also want to like, you know, commit the three points to bring up. I think those are like an interesting way to kind of frame the hierarchy of these conversations conversation because it is like a very specific place to be, you uh, need to have some level of access uh, or yeah, I see those three things as sort of cyclical, and interventions in any of them sort of help to break out of the cycle of poverty and oppression. But um, I guess my question is, like, how optimistic are you that, you know, you, Zach, are going to be able to take on Jeff Bezos and, like, influence the fabric of our society when you don't have $150 billion? Not yet. <laughs> uh, I, so, well, let me address that in a second. To circle back onto the, the larger question, I, I think that, like, your, your approach is one that probably makes, makes a lot of sense in terms of, like, moving slowly and being what we want. I'm, like, concerned, though, because moving at that level assumes that you don't have, like, various forces that are better equipped and better funded to beat you down. I, 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 well, I definitely think that these conversations are inextricably, inextricably connected. Like, race and class to me are super tied together. Um, and there's levels of oppression based on whatever your life experience is. And everybody's had a different experience and been afforded different opportunities. Different brand chance, different instances of, like, where you were, whatever, whatever like, economic class you were born into. And that creates, like, a very interesting sector of oppression of that. And, and so I, I just wanted to ask that as a question in general to kind of broke the conversation because I don't think that racism ever goes away in a world where you have capitalist media groups that explicitly use these tools and wealth groups that explicitly use xenophobic tactics around immigration and whatnot um, to get things done or to motivate them. So that's that's why I think it's just an interesting to have and not it's probably isn't a one answer, so I think you're probably, your way to approach is probably the most realistic way to answer a question like that. Um, you asked me, though, 
you know, am I, how, what can I do, like, how can I take on someone like Jeff Bezos? I don't think it's about, I think we talked a little bit about this with the Grand Blue Bargain, uh, we were kind of talking about that in the last our last podcast on it, my God, now Spotify, whatever, you're listening to this on But, in, in the last book, we talked about how, um, the author says there really isn't the, like, I think in that discussion we talked about how, like, we are the economy, and while it is a, a millions of, and billions on individual choices being made of we still have numbers at the top. <laughs> we don't have to talk about it the same way during the French Revolution where people were chopping heads off, right? But we still have the power to overthrow people um, at the top of the system, whether it be politically, in, in more, like, Various or nah, not various, but like outside the system ways, such as protests and trying to overthrow the government or something, way out of the ballpark like that. So I, I don't think it's me individually. I think it's, it's a plurality of individuals at the bottom that have to come to this awareness, and I, I almost think you start to see that. And if the economy goes, you probably really start to see that because then people feel like they were they were. Um, this is probably getting into a large. individual choices that affect what we do. Same same way as when in the grand food bargain we make decisions in the grocery stores. Here, um, as Edo Lodge puts it uh, on page 222, we should seize it as an, we should seize the current moment as an opportunity to move towards a collective responsibility for a better society, taking account of the internal hierarchies and intersections along the way. So I just kind of think it comes back to that individual moment where we really do need to make a personal What does that, like, practically look like? I think it, I don't, I don't know, it's probably a good discussion to have. I, I think it looks like trying to be anti-racist in every decision you make, um, that, that maybe kind of implicates those, those factors, right? Uh, trying to, as you, if you're a bystander to racism, not being silent bystander, not being a, a party to that, but actually taking action to that. I think it looks like not, you know, working, actively working against your biases because we all have internal biases, no matter who you are, what gender you are, what, uh, what race you are, we all have biases in one way or another that are framed from how we grew up. And I think it's on, you know, people like me who grew up with white privilege and not understanding the intersections of race to fight against those biases and may say this isn't something, you know, to at least take something like that into account and engage with that idea in like, when I'm applying for a job or hiring people for a job and those kind of more broad questions. I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of this collective <laughs> wokeness, I guess, of like trying to actually think about these things as we go throughout our day-to-day -day lives rather than rationalize, rationalizing them away or just letting it fall off the table Engaging with the world around us and trying to implicate these ideas like not easy per se, but I, I think it's worth worth fighting, worth trying to promote.
Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any practical ways in which um, you think we can like you know, in engage with the topic of collective action that was um, Rotor dropped off the call again, so he just jumped back on. But what we were talking about was the quote on page 222 uh, and how this book also kind of calls for a collective movement towards um, a more, uh, more inclusive society in a similar way to trans. The bargain calls for like collective choices when we go to the grocery store uh, and when we're actually picking out different things for ourselves. We, we should think about where they came from and think about sustainability and, and be more responsible to the ways we interact in, in that setting. We also need to take that collective approach on top of the race and class. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, just like as a way to sort of counteract capitalism is just to be more free with your resources and with the people in your life who you know need resources. Like, obviously, there's a broader structural question, but, you know, I don't think we can fairly critique this system of capitalism if we're not you know, generous with our own money and generous with our resources and other people and sort of helping people who we wouldn't necessarily associate with um, or, you know, just being kinder or asking someone if there's some way you can help them out in a real financial way or in a real resource-driven way. Yeah, that's fair. Something that I've seen a lot with, um, like, activists of color on social media or whatever is that they... I mean, they have amazing ideas and experience and insight, but they are not, like, mainstream, I guess, because the movements and the activists that are mainstream are white um, most of the time, and they have that privilege where they are more likely to get mainstream with some degree less of work. Um, so... And this exists, I mean, with all minorities, whether it's, you know, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity, like, whatever. Like, I, there's so many examples I can think of of people who are amazing and knowledgeable and prepared and consistent, and they don't, I mean, they just don't have, like, the following that they should, because the, f I mean, it takes money. It takes money for everything in this, this whole world. So, you know, one thing that they have to be really persistent with which you know some people are turned off by is like join my patreon like send like sign up for this um newsletter or whatever and then it can seem like they're pushy or they just want money but it's because other you know activists or whatever people with platforms who um are not minorities they just didn't have to ask as much or as often for that money and, and it's kind of launched them and so I, I think like with what Rotor is saying um, you know put your money where your mouth is like if you if you love a certain um, media outlet or a certain journalist or a certain podcast or a certain something and you really do have means you should um, support them with resources and with money and I know it's really easy especially for people like kind of in our age group and like our professional situation to be like well I'll just do that like later when I'm more established or whatever and I get that um, you gotta eat but I'm just saying make sure that that like future point doesn't 
it doesn't just keep getting further and further away. And it can be small, like, I, I think you can donate $10 a month to, like, Planned Parenthood, like I do, which I literally only did because years ago when that whole thing where people were donating <laughs> Mike Pence's name, that was, like, years ago. And, like, that's just, you know, that's something I've been doing. And it's small, but it's kind of proportional to, like, the situation that I'm in. So we're, like, paying for the Washington Post, you know. You know, I know that's kind of hard to imagine for some people because you have, like, six free articles or whatever. Um, but I think some things are really worth it. But, you yeah. know, it's hard. And, well, I think that, like, for, for me, I would probably, like, prioritize. And I would probably first say find a cause that you really care about and you can actually verify is doing good and it's, like, high impact, whether it be a local shelter or... <laughs> you know, an animal, a no-kill animal shelter, or a church that's rebuilding uh, homes to Habitat for Humanity, whatever it is, um, find somewhere that you can make a difference, even if it's by giving a small amount, and I, I'm glad you brought up Planned Parenthood, because I think it's a great instance of that, where, you know, there's so many different resources they offer, and they're, they're you know, slandered for 2% of what they actually do, and that, uh, and then after that, if you have media that you like and you still have means to do that, then also do that and pay for the media and don't use your free articles. But I, I think those more tangible things probably would come at a higher priority to me in terms of, like, can you make an impact with where you're giving that money um, versus are we supporting somebody in the middle class who's writing articles or doing a podcast or whatever. Yeah, and it's not necessarily just a moral victory on, on our own part when we, you know, donate to something or spend money on something we find valuable like the only reason that massive corporations have the resources like the only reason jeff bezos is so rich is because tons of people have given him a little bit of money and that he you know takes off the top so if you just give a little bit of money and ask someone else to like you know that can have a huge impact that's what built all of the billionaires is people giving them little amounts of money yeah yeah, that's you know, true. I don't know. Charitable, just to add to Rotor's point, to, when you look at charitable giving in this country, only like a quarter of that comes from the ultra wealthy, whereas, you know, large swaths come from individuals and donations or, or funds that were kind of like contributed to by individuals that have accrued money over time and whatnot. So it's interesting when you, you think about the collective power that we have. We are billions, and they are thousands. You know. Or tens. <laughs> yeah, it depends on how, where you draw the line, but... You know. Yeah, I don't know, it's complicated, and I feel like I can't really say much in this, because, like, I don't know a lot about capitalism, like, and economic, like, theories in general, because I know that what they are, in theory is different often than what they become in practice and there's like so many nuances to it and like i've tried to challenge myself and like learn but i just so boring um to me personally <laughs> so it's like i just don't know a lot about it to like really get into the the weeds but honestly my gut instinct is always to be like <laughs> it's always be like racism is more entrenched you know and i don't really know if that's productive but i think the reason i, I do that is that. because well no shit zach <laughs> <laughs> i 
I think the reason that I do that is because it, I don't know, maybe I just perceive that people try to blame issues on class because they don't want to, and this is not you, Zach, so don't get defensive. You're saying that maybe I perceive that sometimes people blame shitty things on class because they want to downplay racism or because they want to center whiteness like oh there's poor white people too or whatever and it's like yeah that's true but i don't know just any argument that requires me or makes me feel like i'm required to decenter groups like black people or gay people or people with um intersections of many different oppressed identities like i, I don't want to do that and i push back against this conversation um in part because i feel like i have to do that in order to say like yeah capitalism is one of the biggest if not the biggest players in the reason that our society looks the way that it does and i know like i'm not, I'm not dumb i know that's true um because you know big huge corporations that probably are run by like racist white dudes exploit black faces all the time to make money i mean i'm sorry like it happens all the time like and they'll pour money into media campaigns that try to wedge between poor white people and poor people of color Right, and I don't, I'm sorry, I just said Nike. I'm not trying to get sued for slander. I don't know who the fuck the CEO of Nike is, and you're probably not racist, but I I, I don't believe that you chose Colin Kaepernick as your fucking, like, poster boy because you really think that what he did was fucking great. No, it's because people... Obviously, a lot of people think that what Cap did is the shit and that he's great and he stands for something that a lot of people can really relate to and you can make money off of that. And there's a lot of other examples out there and that's probably really cynical, but when I see these huge companies having like this really woke like approach all of a sudden, I'm like, this is, it must be a good strategy for you. And the fact that you're willing to like kind of put aside some of your biases um, for the sake of profit does kind of make me feel like the power of the dollar is more persistent than the power of racism. And it makes me think of Derek Bell's essay, um, the space traders essay. Have you guys read that? You really need to. It's fucking amazing. Um, it's so good, but basically, it's um, a thought experiment. And like these aliens come and they say, We will give you all these resources that will help pull you, America, out of your like bankruptcy and it will help you clean up the environment. And, um, you know, we'll give you a bunch of gold, and it's, please read it, like, it's so good, but, um, we'll but we want, we want all of your African Americans, and you have 15 days, and, um, it goes through day by day, kind of walking through what the country did, and what the president did, and his all-white cabinet, aside from this one person, uh, who was a black conservative, um, and, 
his journey and then like how the Jews kind of got behind the black people and were like, this is way too similar. But then the government started like going after them and then making sure people couldn't escape from the borders and trying to like bargain with the aliens. Like, okay, what if we just give you the people who are on probation, parole, or who are incarcerated? Will you take them instead? And it's just, it's, um, it's such a beautiful, just beautiful piece of work and um it's extremely thought-provoking but at one point all of the like ceos and business people of like the fortune 500 companies like they come and they sit down and they're like we can't let this happen because african americans are such a huge part of our like um i don't know consumer market and they actually spend a lot and Exactly. And so it's like they were like behind it or they didn't care and they wanted to see America just like be reborn at the cost of, you know, just one measly race. Who cares? But then they woke up and they were like, oh, shit, you know, that's money out of our pocket. Maybe we should we should oppose this. And it, I mean, it's it's just so. Yeah. And like. They might not see black people as whole humans, you know, or gay people or Muslims, but their dollar spends the same. They're smart enough to see that, you know, so it's crazy. You should read it. Um, but it just kind of reminded me of that. Yeah. Like, and it, it, but I don't know. Do you understand Zach, why I like kind of like, prickle? Yeah, I understand. Yes, I understand. And I, I do want to, like, affirm that there are certain... I, I'm sure there are people that, like, decenter race from the question of capitalism um, to, like, try and throw the focus back onto poor white folks. But And I think, to be honest, Donald Trump does, like, a pretty good job of doing that on the stump when he's talking about, like, the way that people are getting screwed by the swamp and, um, you know, it's really uh, the people at the bottom that aren't being taken care of and he's the only one that can save them. And so I'm not to say that like those people don't exist for me. And I know you said it's not about me, so I'm not trying to say you are. But for me, it's like I I think people of color are probably the most affected by capitalism and probably the folks that have experienced the most harm because of that. And I think capitalism has a huge role to play in the transatlantic slave trade. And, you know, there's so much there that we probably shouldn't uh, spend. I don't know enough to like speak on the nuances and ins and outs of that history, but I, I would definitely, you know, render an assumption that capitalism is, has a huge role to play, and from what I do know of it, uh, it's a big part of that. And I think the impacts of capitalism in America are very much what motivated slavery to persist for as long as it did, or at least certainly a large part of it that is very much connected to white supremacy and other things. But without capitalism, I, I think you would probably see these things end quicker. Um, and, and there's a lot of a lot of conversation to be had there. So I. I think the, the harms on people of color from capitalism are, are extremely profound throughout history in America and are, you know, if you look at Native American folks, right, and the genocide of Native Americans over hundreds of years um, because we were acquiring more and more land, more and more resources so we could grow as a country and manifest, film, fulfill manifest destiny for white folks um, to, like, take over the, and go see the signing sheet and take over the country, right? And it's like, these things are so connected because that is certainly an aspect of white supremacy and like thinking that is the white man's destiny to like fulfill but there's also an aspect of capitalism there and trying to grow your economy and become a world power and also to acquire as many resources you can for yourself and your family and to like 
uh, make an impact in that way. So I don't think there is an easy answer, but I think that for me, I, I think the intersectionality should be prioritized because there's not an easy answer. And those motivations are those motivations are so inextricably linked to hegemony and power. Like that's the main thing that I think is very clear throughout all of it is that these in instances of racism or capitalism or whatever are generally uh, perpetuated by people who are trying to consolidate hegemony or power or promote whatever their view of the world is um, to you know make more people believe that or enforce it on the world. Sorry if that's a little convoluted. No, that makes sense. So that's what it is for me. So I, it's not that's that's not how I approach it in terms of like trying to decenter it. I think they should be center of the conversation in many ways um, because they're certainly in America in 2020 the the folks that have probably been the the most affected. And that's a lot of different people of color groups. It's not just um, African Americans. It's not just Hispanic folks. It's not just Native Americans. It's it's lots of different um, individuals. And you know. It's different depending on the, the group and the part of the country you live in and, and lots of different things too because things I think um, have changed rapidly recently. So, um, all I, think, I think it's just tough. It's tough to like approach um, a race advocacy group or like a meaning an anti-racism advocacy group um, and, and say like, hey, like, you know what you should really care about is capitalism. Because, you know, if, if you, there's, say you're approaching really like a... You should also care about capitalism. Yeah, yeah, but I, that gets sort of, one of to one of my questions. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to have time for it, so I'll just kind of footnote it here, is like, when you are approaching a movement or a coalition of some kind, and you say, hey, we got to think of everything here. We've got to like take a nuanced, complex view of the world and approach racism and capitalism and ableism and sexism and every other ism. Does that diffuse the message of anti-racism um, when you're forced to sort of like pause and reflect on all the other isms? Does that sort of serve to destabilize and blunt the impact of your central message? And that's something that I, I haven't really resolved, but I think gets to that point of like, hey, which matters more? Like, does it really matter? Or uh, like, yeah, maybe it does because you only have limited airtime or you only have limited resources to approach a problem, but maybe not because like, maybe it's more important to take a comprehensive approach. So I don't know. What do you think? I'm so with you. Wait, 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 no, yeah, wait, we're, we're going to do this question. We're going to do this question. Okay. I'm laughing because this next ad break is so edgy. <laughs> oh, wait, we, hold on. Is the ad break here? I think it's after the next question, right? Before we wrap up. Oh, is it? So, is it? Critical question. Oh, shit. Its own segment. Oh, okay. Never mind. Let's move on to Rotor. <laughs> but yeah, Rotor, we should, I think we should move on to that question. Good. And that can be like our final one. Yeah. Also, if okay. we're not answering uh, the questions and like, to succinctly listeners that's we're just trying to like have a conversation about big concepts in the book yeah. and how they interact so i i don't even think i expected to have an answer in like asking that question so i, I definitely appreciate the conversation well i want to ask my first question so alexis I'll oh that's what you want to do <laughs> yeah do it you should definitely do what you want to do and what you think is important okay well then I'm going to move on to my question. Is that okay? Yeah. All right, great. 
love being in control, listeners. I can't wait for a few months from now when it's my turn again. <laughs> All right. Thank you for the permission. Um, on page 170, Rennie writes, whiteness is a political position and challenging it in feminist spaces is not a tit-for-tat disagreement because prejudice needs power to be effective. And then later she writes, the politics of whiteness transcends the color of anyone's skin. It is an occupying force in the mind. It is a political ideology that is concerned with maintaining power through domination and exclusion. Anyone can buy into it, just like anyone can choose to challenge it. Um, so I was recently in a, in a context where somebody asked me, um, hey Thomas, what's it like to be a white dude surrounded by so many Asian people? And I was kind of confused and like put off by the question, but I was like, uh, it's great because I didn't really know what to say. Um, but thinking about it in terms of the way whiteness, I guess the question is like, do I, should I associate with whiteness? Because I think the answer is no, because whiteness is a political position designed to perpetuate privilege. But to deny that I am white would also be bad because that would be to deny the privilege that has been granted me based off the apparent color of my skin and the sound of my name and sort of my presentation as white. Obviously, that context didn't, you know, really facilitate like this huge conversation with that guy. Um, but I guess the question is like, should I acknowledge that I am white? I and I know that's a very, that's a, that's a very personal question. So I guess maybe to broaden it, should people who appear white and should anyone identify as white? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so first of all this is a great question especially because it's informed by something that really happened to you and that kind of got your wheels turning in your brain and i think that that's cool that you brought it here um, even though I don't know. I guess some people might have been scared to bring that here. Um, but there's no reason to. We're all friends here. Um, so I think that whiteness as a political position designed to oppress those who are not white, um, that's, that's true. But I think at this juncture, to deny your whiteness we're not there, in my opinion, um, because it's just the way that our society is conditioned to think about race and, and has been, like, literally since each of us was born. Um, it's just not at a point where that is, I think, effective. What I think is more effective is just going about your life and your activism and all of that in a way or advocacy, whatever you think that you do. Again, like Rennie said, the places of influence in your life, um, going into those spaces, recognizing that you are white and that it is a social construct, it is a legal construct, but it is one that means a whole hell of a lot. And to harness that privilege and be aware of it and to have this pretty fucking meta understanding of whiteness in general 
and taking that into the spaces where you have influence and being aware of it and um, approaching other white folks with that in mind and in approach, approaching and empowering and engaging uh, folks who are minorities um, with that in mind. So in short, I don't think denying it is effective. I just think it would be a little yeah. contentious like to do that at this point. I'm not saying we can never get to a point where it, I mean, just like, you know, do I think we'll get to a point where people no longer ask me why I basically look exotic? Like, probably not anytime soon, but um, I think that it's a valid thing to want deep down. So I just think, like, knowing where you're at with it and having that in your brain when you're going into the spaces of your life where you have influence is more effective and more noble than just trying to, like, distance yourself from the reality, which is that you are white. Yeah, and I, I think last time you said you were as white as um, plain yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if someone, if someone says like, hey, as a white person, what do you think about this? I wouldn't be like, well, I'm not white because that's a social myth. Like, obviously, I'd be like, oh, yeah, like I am white because I've benefited from what whiteness means today. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't like introduce myself as white or I wouldn't say like, as a white person, I think this, because I mean, that does go back to like what whiteness is. It's a social invention designed by people to separate and to exclude and to oppress. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a biological reality in any way. So mm -hmm. yeah. You're gonna say something, Zach? Uh, yeah. No, I I think that like I've reckoned with this at, at different points and like had discussions with individuals around what context whiteness is like very messy. And like for me, I, I don't think that I have to identify as white with whiteness or as white and take like personal ownership in that in terms of like how I think of myself as a person or like how I think of myself or conceptions of my own reality but you uh, not that last part you do have to take it into account in terms of like how you interact with the world I think I don't have to take identity in whiteness while I could I could not take identity in that but still acknowledge that I have white privilege and I'm being tagged as being white by other people that I engage with I can also acknowledge that it gives me advantages in life um, that it wouldn't give me if I wasn't and that like people are gonna treat me different because of that that being said, I, I don't think it's very useful to think of whiteness as like a biological component that defines who I am because I don't think that, that defines who I am. I don't think I did any of that. I, I take identity in being a, um, I take identity in a lot of things in terms of my interests and my values and my family members, my, even my sports teams to like some degree. But I don't take identity in my skin color because that's not a and I don't just identify with somebody like, oh, high five, bro, we have this in common. I, I think that's kind of weird and, like, gross and something that I don't want to be a party to. And I don't know how this plays in terms of, like, I, I know that for people of color, it's, it's a little bit different and, like, it shapes your reality in, in ways that are so, so much different than the way it shapes my own that you don't maybe have that option to not identify as that or you don't want to, like, make that decision to not identify with your race. So it's not to say, like, you can't, that one can't identify with their with their racial position or with like their 
whatever society is needing them from the outside. I, I just don't like doing so. I'm rejecting like, labels and groups generally, though. <laughs> so I know that my perspective might be a little bit more um, heterodox or not... Um, I don't know. I don't like groups. I, I think groupthink is, is bad. So I, I know my opinion might be a little weirdly framed, I guess is what I'm saying. But that's why I kind of approach it from. I really love what you said about, like, basically what I kind of heard you say was, you know, I don't like to take identity in that it feels gross to me. It, it's not something I want to be party to. But I recognize that people of color don't have that privilege, that luxury, and maybe not even that desire because the race has you know influenced them so differently and i just i think that's a very important um kind of disclaimer of like i think it's it's fine and healthy for you to take that approach and in fact i think it probably makes you more effective because you're not like bogged down by this absolutely useless white guilt that does nothing for anyone um, and you don't let it get to your self-esteem and, you know, cause that's not what anyone fucking needs. Okay. That's not what anyone wants is for white people to like, just cry and shit. Like, no. Um, in fact, Rennie kind of talks about that with some really awesome activists on her, <laughs> um, podcast and it's really good. Um, anyway, so I think to say like, that's not what I like to do and I don't find that productive is really great. And I think that's a model that other white people would be well off to you. I just think it's important to say like other people might not have the privilege or other people's experiences may not have informed them to take this strategy because of the way race has really shaped their lives. And you know, for some people of color, in fact, I know this because of some of the stuff that Zach has recommended to me in the past. Like I know that there are people of color out there who don't identify as black even though we would put that on them. And I know that that's a thing for some people, and that is valid. But I just think putting, like, a cookie-cutter way of approaching your own identity on anyone is um, not a good idea. So I, I just really liked your take on that, Zach, and, like, the kind of, like, disclaimer you have of, like, as a white person, I think this is a great approach. But for you as a person of color, it's totally okay if you do value the race or if you know it's it's a different thing for you so i'm engaged to a woman who is very strong one thing she always likes to reinforce to me is that she doesn't have to vote for somebody because body parts are and i think that this i kind of apply a similar thought here and like that's kind of helped me approach this uh, race in, in the way that i do because i think that like i would like to get to a point in history probably not in my lifetime most likely our lifetime, but where that is much less important is not what just unifies people by default, but rather we like engage with the ideas and who people are on a more genuine level rather than that surface generalized level. Uh, and so I think my I think it's important to have that caveat because we are not there, we won't probably be there as long as I survive. But that's what brings kind of the way that I think about it because that's the world I, I would like to live in. Yourself and your community and your family in the world. Um, 
I know it's like very utopian ideals, but I think that's something we should always be striving for, even if we've never achieved, never achievable in, in realistic and like small ways. What do you think, Grutter? Um, I don't want to jump down a rabbit hole too much, but I, I think that if you had a society, if we lived in a society where people were not associated with different groups and it was more about what you want for your society and it was more about your values that you have and things like that, I think in some ways that's even a more complicated question because it gets to a little bit more of a, um, a, like you said, Zach, a deeper level of like what we value and what we want to associate. And the ideal version of that would be that we all kumbaya and like get along. But I think that, you know, based off my own personal worldview, I think the the uh, the presence of of sin in our in our lives and like the presence of just greed and um, you know just hate oftentimes means that there's always going to be something new to oppose and something to fight against and i think that i may be a little bit more pessimistic about getting there um but that does not in one it, it doesn't reduce my passion to fight against that by one ounce mm -hmm. so there is redemption in the struggle against those things and we can identify racism as something to oppose vigorously and in every in every forum and in every way we can imagine um with the understanding in my mind that you know our struggle is not there's no end point really <laughs> like it's we we're in it for the long haul um yeah, and, like, and so even, yeah even if these problems go away i think your point about like the way just human call, call it sin if, if you're religious call it just human imperfection um regardless but or, or evolutionary necessity sure yeah well, I, I think it'll always change and oppression will always exist in some form and, and like you said it, it's worth fighting and, and addressing how it's shifted and changed and trying to identify those instances and we'll never get there probably yeah agreed we'll never be perfect uh, but i think we can mitigate and get improve in certain aspects and instances of oppression and change the way society handles things that's just been apparent like look at the way the struggles that people of color faced 100 years ago to the struggles they face today or the struggles that women faced 100 years ago the struggles they face today or even like I, I think the struggles that people that are um, differently able face uh, faced 100 years ago versus the struggles that they face today you, you can't see tangible progress in many of these movements despite the fact that it's not enough um, and despite the fact that you probably uh, would like to see more I think things do get better over time, and we can't really improve things, even if oppression springs up in new ways. We then have to focus on that. And that yeah, I really like your take, Rotor. I think that was like very beautifully said, and I think that we might come to this conclusion for different reasons, but I'm also like very cynical um, of the fact that this, you know, like whether it be because sin is innate in human beings or whatever concept you want to apply there, like I am very skeptical, but I don't know. I, I don't see how any person can like, well, I do, you know, burn out Israel and, 
you know, people do have to leave activist spaces um, for real reasons, and that's valid. But, you know, for most people, I don't think we really are like, oh, well, because it's always going to be around, we might as well stop fighting it, you know? And I don't really like to spend a lot of time talking about, like, how far we've come unless it's to um, give credit to the people who were the biggest um, roles in getting us here because it just, I don't know, I don't really feel like I need to spend my time there and it, it doesn't really do anything for me. Um, I'm pretty resolved with moving forward and I have my days um, and I have the songs I listen to when I'm in my funks and I have the people that I talk to when I am, but um, I don't need to spend time there, but I think if you, if it helps you and it helps you keep that resolve to think about um, all of the ways that we've made significant gains as as a society, then do that. Um, and if you want to see it as something a little more cynical like me and Rotor do, then like, okay. But at the end of the day, I feel like what matters is just that you don't give up and you recognize that you're not going to see the world you want to see in your lifetime and you have to just be okay with that because it's not about just us and like it's okay if we don't really see the benefits that we're hoping for and just be okay with it yeah yeah that's a really good point i think i think the, the only danger is sort of like rationalizing that you can't do anything or that you Rationalizing do inaction. I do, and I know I I, I don't want to like name names, but there are people that are very close to me that take this perspective, and um, it makes me really sad. But it also takes them. It, it, it comes to a perspective that's very much n nothing really matters because we're all fucked anyway. So nothing's ever. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that might be more attributed not to like the reality of the state of like oppression and all of that in our society, but maybe more a result of like mental health? I think it depends on the instance, and I, I think that they're probably linked um, in, in different ways. But I think your mental health can be affected by your pessimism of these things as well. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't think always. I, I think that that's a dangerous assumption to be making if we're just writing off those perspectives as a you know, oh, well, that's because there's somebody's depressed or anxious or whatever else. Yeah, no, I don't mean to write it off. I mean, like, for us to maybe, I don't know if there's just no accuracy at all with the the mental health. Because, like, me, for me, I, I know that... I, I think that there's one thing that I really want to get on the record in terms of, like, for folks that are paralyzed, I, I found that they're very useful to explore historical analysis of ways that we've made progress and instances of how we can act in the future. I don't look at ways of how we've made progress in the past necessarily how you do is like drawing focus away from the here and now, but I see it as like a useful tool and like playbooks that we have to study and understand how change is made either incrementally or in like one massive burst because it can happen in different ways and it's important to know how it happened in the past we can maybe replicate those things in the future and understand how similar concepts can be adapted for new times. And so that's where I I just want to resist a little bit the idea that we should never step back to acknowledge like what has happened before. Because I think we have a lot to learn from who, the people that came before us. And I found it helpful for folks in my life that have been, you know, maybe so pessimistic yeah. that they don't want to act 
um, to understand, no, we really have, like, things have changed and we're going to make war us collectively as a society, as people that are fighting against anti-racism and whatever else, have the ability to make change again and make change in better and new ways. I think you're right. That's a, and I didn't say it wasn't, that's a good tool to have in your toolbox and it's, you know, different strokes for different folks. I just said that I don't personally need to spend time there unless it's, you know, reading letter from Birmingham jail or something that Why is timeless. Every time we read the book, I'm sorry to cut you off. <laughs> I just feel like every time we read a book about this stuff, we spend time there to some degree. Without it, I think I would still move forward yeah. with, with resolve. So it's probably impossible to quantify just how much that strategy of reflecting on the past and learning about it has helped me. Um, but I, I feel like if, if that didn't exist, I would still be moving forward because of the activists and the warriors that are here right now and their, their power, you know. Um, and they are, of course, informed by the warriors that came before them. So I'm not denying that, but it's, it's, I just think it's a good strategy. It's a good strategy and it will work for some people, but for other people, maybe they'll need a different strategy. And, um, so it's, it's good. It just, it, it doesn't have to work for everyone. It doesn't have to be what everyone spends time with. And maybe my question about bringing up mental health was like really ableist and I didn't mean it that way. It was just like, I... We all, I think, have experience with some degree of like depression and anxiety and love people who have experience with that. And it might be like a question of the chicken or the egg, what came first, the pessimism or the depression or the depression and then the pessimism. But I, I actually do think that if there is a relationship there, understanding it and leaning into that will help us have compassion for those people um instead of maybe writing them off as just like doomsdayers or and i'm not saying that's what you're doing but i'm just trying to understand people who do think that way because you know 95 percent of the time i don't relate to that um so i hope that wasn't if it was we'll leave it in because that was an honest mistake but i didn't want it to be like an excuse or, or like a negative, you know? I don't yeah, know. I don't think it was. I, I, uh, not. I mean, I didn't take it that way necessarily. And also, I don't mean to like attack your philosophy on this. I just think that I really do value the historical perspective, and that's yeah. probably because of my own opinion. And I have difficulty relating to uh, folks who don't take that into account in terms of their advocacy and activism, because then it doesn't allow you to kind of critique. Uh, mistakes that people are making that would reify harms of people that made the same mistakes in the past. I just think it's important for us to try and take the most effective way forward and the more data, histories, and education that we can draw to make those decisions only make us better advocates and activists. And so I don't mean to like personally challenge you or anything because I, I actually think you do spend a lot of time with, with that stuff but maybe it's just in different ways and we have different relationships. Yeah. Well that might be true. I mean that might be true and I I mean, I, I think it's a very honorable approach to have, and I think it protects against the erasure and the whitewashing of historical things that happened, which should be a huge priority to all of us. So, um, I mean, you could be right. Maybe I do spend all the time there, and I just conceptualize it in a different way, or I use different verbiage, you know? Um, but no, you can challenge me. Like, I, we're, it's a safe place, and I think maybe it'll be entertaining to listen to. I you know? know. <laughs> We've had way more tense discussions.
discussions than that, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, Probably okay. Yeah, Zach has, or Rotor has, like, literally hot date, so that's not good. <laughs> we gotta get him out of here. Guys, I'm scared about this ad break. I'm scared. This episode of Reader Beware is not brought to you by straight white dudes. Need to feel like shit? Tell a white dude your problems. In no time flat, they will let you know you just need to calm down. After all, what's better than suddenly realizing that all of your problems have just been in your head? Get ready for an absolutely smashing time at law school, getting reminded that a straight white dude has it worse. So it's all just a matter of perspective. For only one payment of $6.99, you can buy their app, which curates the best Bitcoin, universal basic income, microbrewery, and football explainers into one easy to navigate place finally an app for real people who just want the facts man worried about bias don't worry the app comes pre-configured in race neutral mode <laughs> it's gonna be a mystery forever as to who wrote that one you guys guess let us know on facebook <laughs> oh my god it's so good i'm scared for the day that we go too far but whatever all right now <laughs> All right, so now we move into the section talking about our revelations. That's what it is. So we got to keep this quick. Rotor, why don't you start? Okay. Um, so the book educated me in a lot of ways about um, the specific problems and issues in the UK related to race. Um, it built on a lot of what I read on the topic, and it really challenged me to think about what it means to be white and what it means to um, honestly just live in a world where race impacts so many of our actions, but it's rarely talked about. Um, it didn't necessarily shake any of my held beliefs um, necessarily. However, it did really prompt a lot of interesting questions um, in terms of how I relate to the people around me and how I relate to um, a lot of what we see in the media, on social media, on the news. Um, and so I'm really grateful for a chance to sort of um, approach this topic um, in a way that I, I hope was humble and in a way that I hope was uh, um, productive. Um, I'm looking forward to reading more on the topic as well as um, talking to other white people in my life about race. Beautiful and succinct. Didn't know it was possible. Zach, you want to go? Yeah, this will probably be neither. Um, so I think <laughs> I, I think I one I agree with everything Broder kind of said at the start in terms of you know being a very specific and interesting understanding of the history of racism in the United Kingdom, something I was not very educated about. I think it uh, is nuanced in that way, and especially for being an American and having a very specific understanding of the issue, kind of being opened up to different societies. Um, interactions with that is, is very interesting. And also the UK is so similar to us um, in the United States and us being, kind of having shared past and link, his, link histories in many ways um, makes it doubly interesting because I think it can be much easier to generalize like the United States and the UK as to like the United States and say Spain or some other region. So those nuances and differences are much smaller um, and the interactions are more comparable I think in many ways. So I, I really appreciate that context 
I, I think that, you know, I, I probably would have some disagreements with, like, small pieces of, of the book in, in terms of, like, how the author approaches things and, and whatnot. But to me, in, in this discussion, they weren't, a, a lot of it really wasn't worth bringing up because it wasn't towards the bigger picture. I think, in a lot of ways, I very much agree with the overarching message of intersectionality and exploring different uh, intersections to oppression and how we all engage with the world around us. I really appreciated the vulnerability that the author goes into and in sharing her own perspective. Um, and I think that in, in general, we would find a lot of agreement on the overarching questions of race and class, race and feminism, um, and just how, how people are engaging with the world around them and, and should be considering uh, these types of topics. It, it, at the end of the day, I think I kind of got at this earlier and I just want to double down on it because I really do believe it is um, something important to kind of discuss. But she says at the end of the book that, you know, things are, things are bad. The structures, structures are, you know, really difficult to change because they're made up of people and they're made up of individuals. So that means the only way to change them is us seizing this opportunity to move, move towards a collective responsibility for a better society. Um, and to take into account those internal hierarchies and intersections along the way in doing so. I, I really think that that's always what it comes down to. We have to trust our, our neighbor and those individuals around us that um, there is a chance to educate folks on these issues and help people address it on that individual level. And it's on us to do so. Edo Lodge um, says that the she gets asked a lot, you know, from white people how they should engage with this issue, and she often will tell them that they can economically or administratively support people of color and voices of activism that are in the space. And I think that's um, a really interesting and uh, solid approach that I probably agree with because if your message is anti-racism, the most qualified people to speak on that are those that have been affected by it uh, in the most harmful way. So providing folks that might not have the administrative support, administrative support, or providing them economic support, that's awesome. But then she also goes on and says you should talk to uh, other white people about race. And I, I think Rotor touched on this as well, but I, I do think the onus is on us as individuals that are engaged with these topics and talking about these topics to talk to other people about these things that are in our sphere that we have that relationship with. Maybe not your coworker or the guy that you run next to the, <laughs> at the gym on the treadmill, but you know, with, with the people you're closest with and with the people that can, you consider friends and that trust your perspective and know that you're approaching these topics in good faith, I think it's it's on us to share with our, our spheres of influence, rather. Um, so I, I just wanted to kind of highlight that because I, I think that I really respect the conclusion that she pitches and kind of the approach forward that she takes because it is tangible and realistic when we get to a lot of these books and we get to the end and it's like, oh, well, we're fucked. I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> ah, there's all these problems, but I, you know, the author doesn't present a lot of tangible and um, specific ways in how we can engage with the topic in our day-to-day -day life. Kind of to Zach's point, like, I don't, we're not trying to make that sound like it's easy. I mean, Zach and I just today were talking about how to have um, a difficult conversation with people that we have history with and that we trust. And it's really challenging. And it is situation to situation. And we're not suggesting that you should, <laughs> I mean, if you want to go ahead, but we're not saying just go stand on the street corner with this book and like pull in random white people. I mean, that's not probably effective. It might not be safe for you emotionally or otherwise. And like, that's not what we're saying. You you have to kind of finesse it. You have to kind of trust your instinct and, and challenge yourself, certainly. Um, but 
it is situational and it is very difficult and we're not trying to make it seem like it's easy but i do think that like zach said Lenny at a lodge does um have a, a beautiful way of putting a, a real plan of action in place and a hopefulness which is very refreshing and necessary um for me i think one of the biggest takeaways is just that I think Edo Lodge is a beautiful writer. It, her, her style just really landed with me. And I think what it is is not just that her words are pretty, but that she takes these concepts and just just gets it out in, in a way that was really helpful. For example, her description of the difference between like prejudice and racism. Uh, she went into it. I forget on what page. Um, but she, she says that it was basically prejudice plus power. And I think that that is kind of the, the explanation that I've been looking for to explain to white people why I don't believe in reverse racism and why I don't think you can be racist against a white person. Um, and really what I needed to say in those moments was you probably have experienced prejudice, but that's different and here's why. And um, there, there, there are other examples of, of that in the book. And I just, I think that it's, it's about tools in our toolbox. And if we can have more tools to understand these concepts and really internalize them and if we can have tools as to how to help other people understand and internalize these things that goes really far and i think edo lodge does such a nice job of touching on um a lot of really complicated stuff and she does it in a relatively short book and um i just want to she'll never hear this but thank her as well as all the other activists who have been exhausted and burned out and who have said i'm not talking to white people about this anymore and who have come back because you don't have to and it's, it's not your obligation to do so so if you are a person of color out there who does engage with white people about race thank you i applaud you um you're probably being taken for granted in that, and I'm sorry, but we really need your voice. And I thank Rennie Edo Lodge for um, going against her blog post and continuing to talk about race with all of us through writing this book because it's very necessary and it helped me a lot. And so, thank you. That was this month. Next month, we're going to be reading a book called The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory written by jesse walker so obviously i think this is a uh or you know we're picking it so i it's my turn to pick so i think it's an interesting book um to dive into i haven't read it yet but i think it's particularly relevant for you know different reasons but w one of the ones that's most infuriating to me conspiracy theory wise is that we didn't go to the moon um <laughs> we very did go to the moon and in 2019 one in ten americans believe uh it was a it was a smaller poll so the sample size wasn't great right but one in ten americans from uh this this study uh said that we didn't go to the moon and the way that that broke down was age groups 18 to 34 18 percent of people believe we did not land on the moon. so of people in my age bracket i follow the age bracket 18 percent almost one in or almost two in ten one in five people believe we didn't go to the moon 
It goes down as you get older, so 35 to 54, that's 8%. Over 54, that's 3%, because those people were there, and they saw it. They saw it. <laughs> and so um, the, what's fascinating to me is that the way that this number is crept up over time. Uh, in 1999, a Gallup poll conducted on the 30th anniversary of the moon landing uh, saw that only 6% of the population believed we didn't go to the moon. So this is something that's always been interesting to me, not just on this single conspiracy theory. This is just the one that's um, one of the more pertinent one to me. Uh, it's more pertinent to me because I have people in my life that argue this and I'm controlling or serious 100% of the time. But there's lots of conspiracy theories that are interesting, some probably more likely than others. And it's, it's something that has existed for all throughout uh, American history and is something worth diving into because i think there are some people on the left um and in these in in the educated left i mean kind of people that are professors or in universities that maybe argue um that conspiracy theories are kind of a new thing and people are more predisposed to conspiracy theories right now so because of things like that i i think it's uh, an interesting topic to get into uh considering where society's at how the internet shaped things and just like trying to have an understanding of, you know, what's our relationship to this as a country, um, and and how has that history been uh, looked at? Well, Zach, I can tell you're very excited about this. What a <laughs> man! Do you, guys, bro, you see the movie Apollo Eleven? They put together a documentary no. this year. It was from all original footage. Watch Apollo Eleven and then come back to me. Tell me we didn't go to the freaking moon. Jesus. <laughs> All right, listeners, well, I think that that is the best possible preview we could ever give you of next month. I, I'm sure now you're absolutely enraptured and can't wait to hear Zach uh, almost lose his fucking mind for two hours next month. <laughs> so, come... Like, uh, personality drugs before we get on that podcast to keep it, like, on track. <laughs> I'm fucking stoked. I'm really excited to learn about, like, maybe the psychology behind why people, um, some people are pretty... Uh, predisposed yeah to to believe these things and also i don't want to do it in like a demeaning way like i don't think that's our goal um so it'll be interesting there's five of them specifically i didn't realize that um so that's cool but anyway uh thank you so much for listening and for liking us on facebook if you did we have some ideas to get um, engagement up more because we really do want to talk to you all and be visible in the month you know in between when we post and when we post again so um just stay with us and share with friends and family and also let us know what you think if you think we're shit honestly let us know because i think we want to improve we listen to a lot of podcasts and um they didn't get to where they are by people just like giving them compliments all the time like either they're super rich and have like professionals to help them with sound and format and whatnot um which we're not so we just need feedback so please don't be afraid to give us feedback all right listen i'm alexis he's zach we'll see you in a month